Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. It is afternoon. I always mess up the time wherever I am. If it's in Kitchener, I say afternoon. If I'm here, I say it's morning. Good to be with everyone again. We are nine days away from Passover, eight days away from Passover. Well, not nine, nine literally, but uh, it is the fifth day of the first month, so we are nine days away from Passover. Interesting, the hymn we just sang, and this poor lisping, stammering tongue. The first question I have that I was going to start out with today was, have you ever known anyone who stutters? Have you ever, ever known anyone who stutters? Moses, we're told, had some type of speech impediment. Some say it was stuttering, though we can't be sure. But we do know that he had some type of speech impediment that he concerned him enough that he did not feel confident enough to go talk to Pharaoh. And he had some type of speech impediment. He reminded God, as you recall, that he was slow of speech and slow of tongue. Jody Fuller was a stutterer. And she described her experience this way. My grandfather stuttered, as did my uncle. My brother stuttered too. And at 41 years old, I still stutter. I'm fine with it now, but that wasn't always the case. It wasn't too terribly difficult the first couple of years of school. In fact, I don't recall being made fun of at all, although there was a great deal of curiosity about my abnormal speech. In the second grade, one of my classmates asked me why I talked funny. With a straight face, I told her that I had a piece of meat lodged in my throat, which caused my words to get stuck, and she believed me. Several years later, she asked me if I still had that meat stuck in my throat. To this day, stuttering can be difficult in more ways than one to explain. Less than one percent of the world's population stutters. However, there was only one stuttering kid in first grade at Jeter Primary in Opelika, Alabama, and that stuttering kid was me. Kids love recess, naps, and show and tell, and I was no different. Recess and naps came easy, and in spite of my speech disorder, I still took part in show and tell, just like all the other kids. I did just a whole lot more of showing than I did telling. At that time, I didn't like being different. I felt that I stood out for all the wrong reasons. It's never easy being a kid, but it's especially tough when you're different. Just imagine the pain, shame, and embarrassment of not being able to say your own name. I would often give fake names when meeting new people because it was easier. It was not uncommon for me to be Jason, or Mike, or Chris, or Kevin, or just whatever sounds I was confident I could say at that particular moment. Most little boys are shy when talking to girls, but I was downright terrified. I can probably count the number of times on one hand that I talked to a girl in elementary school. Years later, many of those same girls told me they thought my stammering was cute. I wish I'd known that then. As I got older, some kids started getting meaner, and the teasing started. Unfortunately, I let it bother me. I shouldn't have, but I did. I put more stock in what they had to say rather than being thankful for the overwhelming majority of kids who treated me with kindness, respect, and compassion. In hindsight, I know that it was a reflection of them and not me. Again, I wish I had known that then. I had sessions with Ms. Watson, my speech therapist, bi-weekly, although challenging My time with her was special. And while in therapy, there was no pain or shame or embarrassment, I could simply be myself and work on my speech at the same time. Class was a different story altogether. It was a constant struggle. It was not uncommon for me to know the answers to the questions, but it was quite common for me to remain silent out of fear of being ridiculed. Reading aloud in class was pure torture. The build-up in anticipation of being called upon created more stress and anxiety than I am able to put into words, which often resulted in tension headaches. 
When it was my time to read, I would lower my head, focus, and stop breathing. I would instinctively hit my thigh with my fist over and over to literally beat the words out of me, whereas other times I would hit the underside of my desktop. This technique allowed me to get my words out, but there was a shadow side to it. When talking to my friends, I would often beat their arms until I finished saying what I had to say. Could anything be worse than that? Kids were mean, and I let that bother me. There were very few days this future soldier didn't find himself crying by the end of the day. I didn't like who I was, and I didn't want to be me. The pain, shame, and embarrassment were too much for me to bear, or so I thought. Sometime in the eighth grade, my attitude changed. I don't recall exactly when, where, or how, or why, but I turned what I'd always perceived as a negative into a positive. I wasn't a star athlete, and I wasn't a genius. I wasn't in the band, and I certainly couldn't sing. But everyone still knew me because I stood out, and that was a good thing. I was different, and I finally embraced that difference and ran with it. Jody hated being different. Stuttering made him feel different. I remember going through school and feeling different. I didn't stutter, but I was a Sabbath keeper, and I was different. I remember having to take this funny bread as sandwiches during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I remember having to leave school for the feast two weeks, three weeks into a new year for a whole year. And back then, no one went on vacations during school year. You see it all, you see it now, it's very commonplace. People go on vacations, people go on hockey tournaments. Lots of people take time off during the school year. Back when I went to school, no one took time off. And I hated being different. It, it bothered me to be different. Until, as what happened with Jody, you came to appreciate and understand your difference, and then you embraced it and moved on. But I remember being different and how that made me feel. Turn, if you would, to Leviticus 11 as we start. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that in the story where we're at in, in time here in Leviticus 11, Israel is proceeding into their journey. Israel is proceeding into their journey. Sorry, thanks. Thank you, though. Um, as Israel proceeds into their journey, they are on their way to the promised land. They didn't know they had 40 more years ahead of them, but they are on their journey to the promised land. And he, what we find here in the Torah is God listing his expectations to them. He does so in Exodus, the last latter half of Exodus, and here in Leviticus. He's listing his expectations to them. And Leviticus 11, verse 44, he says this, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And then very succinctly he says, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It is interesting that this command comes at the conclusion of his instructions on what is we are to consider clean to eat. It is interesting that that specific command comes at the conclusion of those instructions. They're found in Leviticus 11. Too often, when we consider this, considering this word holy, too often, biblical words are misused, misapplied, and misunderstood. What does holy mean? We are commanded to be holy. What does holy mean? Does it mean righteous? Does it mean perfect? Well, sort of it does. Perfection and righteousness have a part to play in what holy means, but it doesn't explain it in full. A full comprehension of the, what it means to be holy 
involves the transition from Passover to the Feast of Pentecost through the Days of Unleavened Bread. And it's another example of God's plan of salvation being explained through the narrative or the story of Scripture as explained by the annual Holy Days. So as we, as Brother Jan mentioned in his, some of his comments, as we work to prepare for Passover and in his, his intercessory prayer, as we work to prepare for the coming Passover in nine days and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, let us take some time today and analyze the word holy. I'd like to study the word holy. And what does it mean to be holy? How does being holy relate to the keeping of these upcoming appointed times? And how does being holy fit into our overall understanding of the narrative of the Bible? That's what we're going to look at this afternoon. A quick recap of what this narrative is. We went into it in some detail several weeks ago, and we've been going into detail over the course of the last year or two. But when we consider the story of the Bible, it is how we get from Genesis 1, verse 26, where God, and you, you can write these scriptures down. We won't turn there for time's sake. How we get from God wanting to create us in his image and his likeness to turning our back on him and being expelled from the Garden of Eden to being allowed back into his presence and him coming, him coming down to earth with the kingdom of God in Revelation 21 and 22 and how we do that through the covenant he made with Abraham. That's the story of the Bible. If you were to describe the Bible in a sentence or two, that's how we would describe it. How we are redeemed from death the from the result of our original sin in Eden, brought back into paradise here on earth because the kingdom of God comes to earth to dwell eternally with the Father and with our Savior and how this is all outlined through our keeping and understanding of the Sabbath and the annual appointed times of God that we call the Holy Days. That's the narrative. How does being holy fit into that? And how do we, does being holy explain through the transition from Passover to Pentecost through the Days of Unleavened Bread? Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. What we need to do first is understand the words that are used in the transcript, the Holy Scriptures that are translated into this English word, holy. So briefly, we're going to look at a few, Greek, a few Hebrew words and a Greek word, just by way of introduction. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5 tells us this. This is Moses coming to the burning bush. And God said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is the word kodosh, Q-U-Q-O-D-O-S-H. It refers to a sacred place or thing. This is specifically a sacred place or thing. Number 6944, if you're taking notes in relation to Strong's Concordance. A related word is kadosh, Q-A-D-O-S-H. It is number 6918. For that, we go to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. We're just going to go through these a little quickly. We have a lot to get to today. So the first word, kodosh, refers to a sacred place or thing. And we saw that describing the holy ground that God would interact with Moses on. Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is kadosh, number 6918. And this is an adjective that means to set apart from the rest for a special function or purpose. So kadosh was really describing a place or a thing. Kadosh was describing, in this case, the people, and describing them as being set apart for a special function or purpose. Let's go back to Genesis 2. 
and we see the verb form of kadosh, and that is kadash, Q-A-D-A-S-H. That is the verb form, and we see this here in relation to the Sabbath. At the end of the creation account, God talking about the seventh day, and again, jumping into the context specifically for the purpose of identifying these words that mean holy, then God blessed, Genesis 2 verse 3, the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. That verb sanctified is the verb kadash. And again, all related to this same notion of being set apart by God for a special function or purpose. Let's now go to Matthew 27. We'll briefly look at the Greek word. And that Greek word, number 40 in Strong's, and then we're done with our grammar lesson. Number 40 in the Greek concordance is hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. We see this here in Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's, show, it's there twice. It's there describing the word city. And we talked about that holy city recently. But it's also the word for saints. Here, the saints of God are described as holy. Hagios. Sacred, that Greek word, sacred, Physically say, uh, pure, morally blameless or religious, ceremonially consecrated. So the same tor- sort of concept that we see in the Old Testament about being specifically designated for a special purpose or function. And in the New Testament, we see it describing the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit. We see it describing the saints. We see it describing the Holy City. It's used any number of times, 223 as a matter of fact, as a descriptive word for what God has designated holy. This is a nice, simple overview of what words the writers of Scripture have used to talk about, to describe this concept of holy. But what does it really mean? That's We've looked at Strong's, we've gone through the four different words, and there are likely more variations of those words for sure. What does it really mean? How is it applied in Scripture? And what can we learn from understanding what holy really means? What does holy really mean? Let's go back to Leviticus 11, where we were. Where we saw God's command to be holy because he is holy. And let's start to get a deeper understanding of what that word means. And recall, God is revealing himself to his people, Israel. They have followed him out of Egypt, as we're going to picture in the coming weeks. They are now wandering in the wilderness, beginning their journey, and learning here about who this God is that they are following. Verse 24 gives us a bit of an inkling into this. By these you shall become unclean. Again, specifically talking about animals and food. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Then he goes through the next coming verses and talks about various washing rituals if we come into contact with either an unclean animal or a de- a, a, an improperly killed clean animal. So that's how God is starting to relate this topic of holiness. He attaches it to this concept of of clean and unclean animals. Verse 39 tells us this. If any animal which you eat dies, so now we're talking about clean animals, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And he who also carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be clean until evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on earth shall be an abomination, and it shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, 
Now, this is all in the context of what is clean in the first half of the chapter. These are, this is everything else. What crawls on its belly, what goes on all fours, what ha, whatever has been made has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth. You shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make for yourselves abominable. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. So we understand the concept of this clean and unclean meat, but let's let's zero in on some of these concepts here. Lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. We read this. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves or be different. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall, you shall be set apart for a specific function or purpose because God is set apart for a specific function or purpose. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and, of the, and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So here we see, as, as I talked about in the introduction, God's food laws here and connecting this concept of holiness to what, we can, what God deems edible and unedible or unclean. But also, as we read, not only what we can and can't eat, but exactly how we treat what we come into contact with. If it was killed properly, if we find it dead, we can't touch it, or we, or we must go through some water. They had to go through some washing rituals. Our creator uses clean and unclean meats, which we know are still in effect today, for another reason. So in addition to teaching us what we can and can't eat, he uses it for another reason. To introduce the concept of being pure and undefiled before God. What it means to be pure in the sight of God and what it means to be defiled. There is a difference and it does matter. And he introduces that concept here with this concept of clean and unclean meat. In addition to what is healthy for us to eat and these, these food laws that are still in effect, it teaches us the difference between clean and and unclean, what is pure and what is undefiled. Because as he mentioned, as we saw him mention here, lest you be defiled by them. There is a difference and it does matter. God tells them, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery to this world. I brought you out of slavery to the adversary. If you want me to be your God, if you want to follow me to this promised land, to be part of the salvation process. Be holy and be different. It requires you to be different. If you don't want to be different, don't come. That's okay. But if you want to be different, if you want to follow me, you must be different. This is what we need to do. This is the concept of being holy. What it means to be in covenant with God. What does it mean to follow him? It requires being different. It requires all those things I felt when I was a kid about being different and uncomfortable. But like Jody Fuller described in his experience, he came to a point where he appreciated those differences and saw their value. Leviticus chapter 10, what Jessica read for us in the scripture reading. Leviticus chapter 10. Here, holiness is talked about in relation to the conduct of the priests. So we're starting to see conduct being linked to holiness. Leviticus 10, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say, the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. So, especially those who are leaders here to Israel, the priesthood, maintain your composure and your ability of sound mind 
because you need to be able to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, what is clean and what is unclean, what is holy and what is unholy. Why? That you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord God has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Here we see God's expectations for his priests, which are his leaders. And remember, we are all to become part of this royal priesthood. Peter tells us that, and we'll look at that a little bit later as well. But here, what we see presented to us is a comparison that will help us understand what holiness really is. And what we see is that being holy is the opposite of being common. That's what we see here. That you may teach, that you may distinguish between what is holy, some your version may say unholy, or your version may say common. You may teach the difference between what is holy and what is common. So if we want to understand what it means to be holy, let's also understand what it means to be common. What everyone else does. What everyone else does. What is not special. What is not set apart. When we consider what we've defined holy to be, that being special, set apart for a specific purpose, set apart for a specific function, specifically selected by God for a specific reason. The rest is everything else. What is not has what has no purpose. What is not special, what is not set apart. There's either holy or everything else. What is special or everything that's not in that set called holy. Let's go to Ezekiel 44. We'll see that while time passes, Expectations do not. God's expectations remain the same. We're now well along here into the story of Israel. God's select people. And we see this admonition to be, not just be holy, but teach people to be holy remains the same. Verse 23 referring to the priests again, centuries down the line from where we just were. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy. And not just teach them the difference, but cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So we're starting to see this explained in greater detail as Israel is further along in their journey with God. So not just teach them the difference so they can enumerate the differences, but teach them how to discern, teach them how to understand, teach them how to see the difference. That is holy. That is not. Why? Because I know what it means to be holy, and I will know what it means to be common or unholy. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow, hallow my Sabbaths. So how do we learn to discern between the holy and the unholy? God's law helps us understand what is holy and unholy. And when and where do we learn it? At his appointed times, when we come together on his Sabbaths and his holy days. We learn what it means to be holy. And it's incumbent upon the leaders of God's people, and that goes right down to parents, to teach the difference between holy and unholy. There is a difference, and it does matter. The expectations have never changed. The execution of the leaders was not always there. But God's expectations were consistent. So when he's with them here, through the pen of Ezekiel in Babylon, the expectations are the same as they were when they were freshly out of Egypt. Let's go to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Verse 
we see here, we won't go through Leviticus 19. Feel free to do that on your own. A section of God's law called the moral and ceremonial laws. You like your Bible may have that caption above chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses saying, verse 1 of chapter 19, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And then what does he do? He proceeds to tell them how they need to act and how they interact with one another. See, we as human beings sometimes get all uptight when we hear the word law. If you're a lawbreaker, it gets you uptight. If you're a law keeper and you see a policeman, you're wondering what I did wrong. Sometimes we get uptight when we hear the word law. God here, relative to holiness, lists his expectations of how they interact ceremonially and what, what we deem here as the, the moral laws. Really, all they are are behavioral expectations. That's all. How does God expect us to be? How does God expect us to act? We have those everywhere. From the moment you wake up, you have law in your life. Do I want to go to this school? What does that mean to go to this school? Can I dress any way I want? Do they have a uniform? Do they not have a uniform? Can I show up whenever I want? Or is there specific times I need to show up? Do they have, can I eat in class? Can I talk on my phone in class? If I go to this university, what are my expectations there? Can I go for free? Or is it going to cost me money? If I go there, what is expected of me? If I go to this gym, can I go any time? Is there a way that I need to dress? Is the equipment such that I need to operate it a certain way? Or can I do whatever I want? If I, go to this, if I have this job, what does this job require of me? Can I speak to everyone in whatever way I want? Or is there a certain way that I must speak to people? Is there a certain way I must write to people? Is there a certain time I must show up? Do I, should I take my... I'm not hungry right now. Well, I'm sorry. This is your lunch hour. This is, you can eat or not eat, but this is your lunch hour. We have law that governs our life everywhere we go because our, it basically governs our actions, our behavior. When we are part of a specific group, it requires that we behave a certain way. God is no different. He calls following him holiness. If we want to follow him, don't follow. That's okay. If you don't want to be holy, that's okay. Don't follow. But if you want to follow, it means being holy. And time and time again, as he introduces his expectations of people, he says, be holy, for I'm holy. And if you want to know how to be holy, this is how you be holy. We'll talk about food. Here we'll talk about ceremonies. Other cases we'll talk about moral laws. Peter clarifies this a little more. Let's go to 1 Peter 1. He quotes Leviticus, and in doing so, adds a little bit of color to what being holy means for us. 1 Peter 1. Verse 13, we've read this before. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up your, the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children. So how are we to, he starts here by talking about having control of our minds, and getting our minds ready to defend Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, not doing what everybody else does, not doing what you always did, but in obedience to what? To law. As in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Holy is simply how we choose to behave. And what, what two options were there? There was holy, 
And then there was everything else, which we can call unholy or common. Holy is simply being set apart for a specific godly purpose or function. You want to follow God. You want to be selected as part of those who are following God. You are now holy. Specifically selected for a function or a purpose. So what does God call holy? What does scripture tell us that he calls holy? We read in Genesis 2, verse 3, that he sanctified the seventh day and set it apart for a specific reason, that we may rest on it. And ultimately, as we learn through the pages of Scripture, that we worship on it, that we, that we meet together, that we worship him on this specific day. Let's go to Leviticus 23 and see that time is holy. He has holy time. We've already looked at food. That there is specific food that is holy. There is specific food that is unholy. We saw the, the area around the burning bush was a specific place that God said, that is sacred. I'm, I am deeming that area holy. You treat it holy. Take your shoes off. Don't go there on that specific piece of holy ground. Time is holy. And we see this here in Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. So the Sabbath is holy. We didn't make it. We didn't make the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath. It's his prerogative to call it holy. The Sabbath is holy time. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. He then continues past the Sabbath. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. We went into appointed times a few weeks ago. We've gone through appointed times several times. But here we see holy consecrated time. The seventh day of every week is holy. God says so. God says, you want to follow me. This is a day every week that I consider holy. I consider set apart for a specific reason. And then throughout the year, there are specific days that I consider holy. This is my time. This is my time. It reminds me during the week, when I, after, after work, when I get working too long, or if I'm not at, at home often, Landon will say, we don't hang out enough. I need time with you. This is my time. The daylight hours between the time I get home from school and the time it goes dark, that's my time. It's time I get to, we get to do things together. God here says, these days throughout the year, it's my time. It's holy. I've set it apart. Law is holy. Let's go to Exodus 19. So, there are food that God considers holy. There are places God considers holy. There is time that God considers holy. Exodus 19. This is just before Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. So we're going to be receiving something here, and it is so special. I want you to put a boundary around this place. This place where you are right now, this Mount Sinai, this is special. This is a specific, holy, special place for a specific reason. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because I did this, because I brought you out of Egypt, because where you are right now, you are here simply because I did this. If you want to stay here and not go back to Egypt, here's what you need to do to follow me. And then he lists 
what we call the Ten Commandments as the basis of the behavioral expectations that he has for us. Why? Because he called us out of slavery to our Egypt, to our slavery, to our adversary, to whatever bondage that kept us separated from God. Because I did this, and you are choosing to follow me, behave this way. This is how you behave if you want to be considered as a child of mine. Romans 7. Let's go to Romans 7 and see a little bit more about law being holy. Remember that sin, which is the transgression of God's law, the results of that transgression, the results of breaking God's law, is a separation between us and our God, between us and our Creator. The results of sin is that we are, there is a wedge between us. The one relationship that is most important that any person can have, there is a wedge when, when, when we commit sin. Verse 7 of Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. Sometimes this gets Paul and how he, he, his, his deep intellectual understanding of God's ways can be hard for us to understand. So when we think of sin, think a wedge between us and our Father. Think of the impact of sin. Rather than just focusing on the, the, the transgression of the law, which laws apply? Think of the law as God's, as God's behavioral expectations that, we, that we've already talked about and how this defines for us what it means to follow him. And that sin simply drives a wedge in that relationship. I wouldn't have known that there was a wedge between me and God except for these behavioral expectations I didn't, realizing, I didn't realize I was breaking, that I didn't realize I, I wasn't following. For I wouldn't have known covetousness I didn't know the impact of coveting something more than my God if I didn't understand this law that thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but then the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found it to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Paul came to the realization that when he broke God's law, when he didn't follow one of God's behavioral expectations, it drove a wedge between him and God. And he didn't realize there was this gap. He was this perfect Pharisee that knew every aspect of the law, but he didn't understand its purpose. He thought it was just a list of do's and don'ts that he must follow meticulously. He didn't understand its purpose. To build a relationship with God. That it, this was simply how to be in covenant and relationship with God. And when he figured it out, he said, I didn't realize. I didn't realize the impact of not following you until I saw all these behavioral expectations listed. Until I understood what they were really for. I wouldn't have known separation from God if it weren't for the law. The name of God is holy. God's name is holy. Let's go to Exodus 20. Go to one of those Ten Commandments. Verse 7 of Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. His name is holy. His name is set apart for a special purpose. So we understand who our creator is, that we can worship him, that we can glorify him and honor him. It is not a name that is to be used flippantly or mischaracterized. And this goes far beyond just swearing. 
or taking the name of the Lord, the Lord in vain. When you use, when you invoke God's name for common reason, whether it be out of anger or, or, or swearing of any kind, there are many ways to take his name in vain. When we mischaracterize him, when we say we are a child of God and then act in contrary to how God expects, we are telling the world, you know me as a child of God, and this is how I behave. First Timothy 3. Here we see, and this is the, the counterpart to Titus 1, which is also, you can check this out in Titus 1, verse 6. But here in 1 Timothy 3 are the characteristics of the office of a bishop or an elder. A bishop, verse 2, then must be blameless. A bishop must be blameless. Noah was blameless. Job was blameless. An elder must be blameless. But it, it, it can't mean perfect. I can't speak for Pastor Adrian, although I know he would say the same thing. We're not perfect. We know each other too well. Everybody knows none of us are perfect. So if a bishop must be blameless, it can't mean sinless, or there would be no bishops except one. And that is the great bishop, our Savior. It cannot bring a public charge against him. Are they walking the right way? Yes, they stumble. They're human beings. But can I look at Noah and can I look at Job when God did, when God wrote that about them? Can I look at an elder or anyone else that is considered blameless and say, they're walking the right path? Yes, they stumble. But are, is there, are they walking God's way? Are they walking the right way? Can I bring a public charge against them? That's part of the explanation of Noah and Job, that they were, they were righteous people. They, they knew what God expected of them, and they tried their best to walk that way. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. The whole book of Job is about how he wasn't good enough, how his self-righteousness was a problem and was an impediment for his growth. Let's go back to Romans 8, a little further explanation on this point. We read verses 6 through 8, talking about how the human mind, naturally without God, worked against God. Verse 5 tells us this, Romans 8, verse 5, and adds a little bit more color to this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. This is that holy and unholy discussion again. Did they live their lives as best they could according to the will of God? They were blameless. They were on the right path. They were doing their very level best. Is our path, our mindset, our focus one of walking God's way? We see David. We know David was a man after God's own heart. David himself was a man after God's own heart. Go back to Acts 13. Acts 13. What does a man after God's own heart, what does that mean? Verse 22, Acts 13. And when he had removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. We went through a whole history of David's life and saw how dysfunctional his family was. The decisions he made that were where he dropped the ball, where he sent. Yet God here says, he was a man after my own heart. Why? Because he follows his will. His will, as best as he can, is in line with God's will. Perfect? No. Blameless and righteous? Yes. Eventually perfect. When we are completely free of this human tabernacle that causes us all of this dysfunction that Paul talks about in Romans 8.
But David was a man after God's own heart because he would follow his will. Yet he lived, he sinned all the time. And we see it here. Context, context, context. What does the story of the Bible tell us? Noah and Job were not perfect, but they were upright. They were blameless. And they lived righteous lives, but not perfect. Holy. Eventually, we will all be perfect. We will all have our spirit bodies in the kingdom of God, free from the desires of sin. But we are holy. In our imperfect state, we are set apart and called out to be different, to align our will not with ours, but with God's, to be after God's own heart. That is what makes us holy in this life. Believing that we are simply not trying hard enough diminishes our need for the sacrifice of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can go to John 14 and John 15 and see where Christ describes the helper. That when he leaves, there was no need for the helper when he was here. We had him here, we, we had him here with us. They had him, him there with them. But when he left, he said, I will leave you the helper. Why? You're going to need some help. You're going to need some help to get this right. Because we've got history on our side that says you, you can't do it without. You can't do it on your own. So how does this relate, this concept of holiness, to the days of unleavened bread? Pastor Adrian last week spoke to us about the imprinting of our attitudes and how when we are, are younger, we are, are, we are imprinted with actions and items that, that guide our minds, that we don't even realize we have these attitudes. But eventually how our true attitudes will come out in our behavior, that we can't hide our attitude forever. It will eventually come out. Whether it be good or bad, it will eventually come out. And putting on the mind of Christ requires a constant monitoring of our attitudes and putting off the old man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. It was referred to in the youth study. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5 and see this concept of holiness as it relates to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, we're gearing up for Passover, but we need to also be gearing up for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 1 Corinthians 5. Initially, let's begin in verse 1. It is reported, actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as, as, it is, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Your congregation, Paul said, is defiled. How can that be? How can your congregation accept something that not even a good Gentile would accept? How can it accept that? The congregation is defiled. Drop down to verse 6, and let's get this concept of the Feast of Unleavened Bread going here. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For Christ indeed... Our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're, again, we see the transition from Passover to the feast of unleavened bread. Let's read. Let's really read what he said here. Why do we need to stop acting this way? Because Christ was sacrificed for us. That is a mirror that we look into and say, I need to look at my behavior and realize that Christ died for me. Therefore, because he died for me, because of that, therefore, keep the feast properly. Put out the old leaven and put out the leaven of malice and wickedness. That is how we keep the feast of unleavened bread. Once we get rid of the physical aspects, get rid of the physical leaven from our lives, and we, we eat unleavened bread and make sure we do. Remember, we're doing this because Christ died for us, and we need to be better. We need to stop the old leaven, stop those annoying little habits that, that Paul talks about in Romans 8 that, you, that are, are constant issues for us. 
and that perhaps we're a little better this year. You know what? Next year I'm going to be better. Next year I'm going to kick this habit. I'm going to, I'm going to make some progress on this habit. In addition to that, this leaven of malice and weakness, make sure there's no evil in your heart. Make sure that your will is aligned with God. Each year we get to rehearse God's plan of salvation in our lives from the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of our sin to the putting off of the old person as represented by the ingestion of unleavened bread, which is pictures Jesus Christ, our bread of life. And we do this all in preparation to remember the receipt of the Holy Spirit, that helper, that, that God's presence in our lives, his power within us to help us change and help us affect others. But Christ, because he gave his life for you, because he gave his life for you, keep that feast of unleavened bread, not the way man typically lives his life, filled full of sin, flawed, with evil hearts and evil intentions. Don't keep the feast that way. Don't keep it keeping the same flaws or having evil in your heart or, or malice or ill intent or, or something that is bothering you. We need to keep this feast pure and sincere undefiled and true. That's what the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth is. Free of all that that drags us down. Free of those things that Paul talks about in Romans 8. Free of ill will. We keep Because Christ died for you, we keep it with purity, sincerity, undefilement, and truth. Why? 1 Peter chapter 2, our last scripture. Why do we we see this connection from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all wrapped around this concept of holiness. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation. That very word smacks of holiness. You were selected by God. For a specific reason. You are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You are part of God's selected group of people. His own special people. That you may proclaim, not that you can feel special. Not that you can feel better than we're part of this holy group. We're way better than this group of common unholy people. Not for any of those reasons at all that we may proclaim the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we realize the impact of all that went into our being there at Passover and our being there at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all that Christ did so that we could have a seat there, all glory goes to God. It is, it is so special to be called as part of that group. You who were once not a people, you were just part of this common crowd, part of what is called un- unholy or common. You are now selected as the people of God. Realize that. Realize how important that is. Who had not obtained mercy. You were just part of, you didn't even know you were breaking the law. You had no clue. Like Paul said, I had no clue that about separation from God. When he uses that phrase, I didn't know sin apart from the law. I didn't know I was separated from God until I realized there was an expectation of me who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We answered God's call to follow his son on this journey to the kingdom of God. It requires us to be different than we used to be. We can't be the same old, same old. It requires us to be different. We call that God calls this being holy. That's what being different is, just holy. A new way to act, a new way to interact, a new way to behave, and a new way to think. All of this outlined in all of these behaviors God describes here as holy. It is okay to be different. In fact, when we consider that to God, being different means being holy, it is the exact opposite of being common, of being just like everybody else, or doing what everybody else does. As we work together, with the help of the Holy Spirit to be a model people, 
that royal priesthood that Peter talks about, that city on a hill Christ talks about in his Sermon on the Mount, God's holy people, let us value the Feast on Love and Bread in this process. Weeding out the old person, weeding out the bad habits, weeding out the wrong attitudes that lead to wrong behavior, and putting on the mind of Christ. As you continue to deleaven your homes and your lives, and then buy or make this strange flat bread that you'll look different eating, and then not ingesting any type of leaven, realize this simply pictures the level of detail that goes into becoming the child of God he called you to be. That's the level of detail this journey requires. Albert Einstein made the following insightful comment. The one who follows the crowd will usually go no further than the crowd. The one who walks alone is likely to find himself in places no one has ever seen before. What about he who chooses to follow Christ? He who chooses to be holy? To quote another award-winning author, Dr. Seuss, Oh, the places you'll go. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.